Thank you. It is an honor and a pleasure to speak to the class of 2027 today. And it's so great to see you all here. And thank you, Kathy, for such a generous introduction. As Dean also mentioned, I arrived at Reed in 2015 after having spent five years teaching at the University of Helsinki Law School in Finland. There, I taught interdisciplinary courses on jurisprudence, law and gender, cinema, and human rights. Using my background in law, film studies, and literature, in these courses, I sought to challenge law students' notion of law being an abstract system of rules, and instead invited them to consider it deeply connected to the humanities and the arts, as well as to culture more broadly. Here at Reed, students may not need to be reminded about the broader cultural and sociopolitical context that shape the law, but they may still benefit from realizing that law itself can be approached in a manner no different from other humanities subjects. Students may come to class feeling that law is a technical discipline made by lawyers and for lawyers, in my film classes, however, I like to impress on students that the, the idea that law requires similar abilities they have learned to employ in other classes. In particular, the ability to read and interpret text and visual images. I try to ease students' concern with law's technicalities by encouraging them to approach law and film not as two autonomous fields, but rather as two ways of framing the world, in which they can inform, complement, and comment upon each other. Hopefully, at the end of this talk, it will become clearer what I mean by this. So today, I want to talk about one specific relation between law and culture. In particular, I want to talk about my current research project, provisionally entitled Documentaries Against the Law, which examines the relationship between documentary films legal trials, and truth. My project focuses on criminal trials, wrongful convictions, and unsolved crimes to explore how these legal cases transpire and are picked up by true crime documentary films. One specific question I'm interested in pursuing is how these documentaries construct their own alternative um, account of the criminal event. To put it slightly differently, how do, be, how do viewers accept the documentary's reconstruction of the story as credible, even more so than the final verdict reached at trial? Some of the questions I ask are, what discursive and interpretative frames do documentaries deploy to present facts and events? What constitutes evidence in these documentaries and how it is created? What assessments of credibility do documentaries invite? How do we viewers accept or, re or reject and such an alternative accounts of events? And finally, what other images of law, truth, and justice do they construct? I'm sure that many of you may have seen documentaries like Capturing the Freedmans, or Netflix popular true crime series such as Making a Murderer or When They See Us. What this new wave of documentaries has in common is that they re-examine trials that resulted in miscarriages of justice. 
It is worth noting that these documentaries place the legal system under scrutiny and leave viewers uncertain, mistrustful, and frustrated with the outcome, in contrast to more classical crime stories that would provide certainty and closure. Where classical true crime documentaries embrace the legal system and celebrate the authority of both the police and the courts, these new documentaries start from the premise that the defendant might be a victim of an unfair trial. For example, there might be cases of racial profiling, police misconduct, prosecutorial bias, or systemic corruption. In short, these documentaries raise deep questions about the justice system structural shortcomings and the court's general ability to render fair and impartial verdicts. The ever-growing popularity of true crime documentaries have not gone unnoticed in the legal context. Legal scholars such as Jennifer Nukin, Jessica Silvey, and Regina Austin, to name a few, have argued that the study of these documentaries is relevant for law students and lawyers, and this is so at least for two reasons. First, they perform a kind of legal as opposed to simply an artistic intervention. Indeed, beyond their entertainment value, they produce alternative legal meaning and shape the legal investigation in a way that might transform passive spectators into engaged citizens who advocate for the wrongfully convicted. This is what happened with viewers of Making a Murderer, who advocated for the release of convicted prisoner Stephen Avery after the first season of ne on Netflix in 2016, when more than 200,000 people signed a petition asking President Obama to pardon him. A, re a second reason uh, these scholars give to reflect on these documentaries is that they can function as both as an alternative filmic trial for the defendants and simultaneously as a public scrutiny of the actual legal trial. They challenge the fairness of the, of the original legal process and uh, allow doubt in the defendant's guilt to be fully articulated. Interestingly, in order to present their account, they tend to follow the same structure as, as a legal trial itself, using legal rhetoric and offering their own evidence. They produce evidence in the form of photographs, CCTV videos, and reconstructions of archival footage from the actual trial. They can also include interviews with the defendants, families, friends, lawyers, and forensic experts to poke holes in the prosecution arguments and theories of the case. Viewers thus are invited to in interpret all this evidence and evaluate it from the point of view of this new public trial that the documentaries create for them. This is what uh, legal scholar Jennifer Nukin describes as a process of juridification by which the film places viewers in the roles of jurors, judges, investigators, or witnesses addressing whether or not the prosecution sufficiently proved its case against the defendant beyond a reasonable doubt. But one interesting paradox is that while these documentaries question the trial's capacity to establish an unbiased truth, they usually present themselves as capable of reconstructing what really happened. 
Indeed, a very common um, assumption of these documentaries is that they can be trusted and offer reliable accounts of the crime and its circumstances. However, as documentary film scholars and filmmakers acknowledge, they are the result of processes of selection and decision made behind the camera. For instance, filmmakers decide about what should be included or left outside the frame, how to structure the narrative for bigger impact, what music or sound to choose for increased emotional effect, and how to position and move the camera to emphasize a point of view or show a specific reaction. The authority and credibility of documentary to a large, and to a large extent its success depends on the viewer tacit acceptance of the film's maker claim to truth. As a result, the constructed nature of the documentary is often left undisclosed as the opposite could undermine its claim to authority. The question then becomes, how do documentary filmmakers persuade viewers that they are showing is, what they are showing is the account of what really happened? Filmmakers use different techniques to do so. Some might rely on a voiceover to give a sense of uh, narrative neutrality. Others might decide to take the position of an impartial observer rolling the camera without their explicit intervention. Thus, they avoid using voiceover, explanatory intertitles, or sound effects. Instead, they employ handheld cameras or unedited footage to create the feeling of authenticity and evoke a sense of immediacy. Yet, there are filmmakers who prefer to stress their presence and point of view in the film. They can use reflexive techniques such as dramatic reenactments, animations, or fictional film clips to disrupt expectations about the documentary's neutrality and thus invite viewers to be on guard about what they see and how they interpret what they think they know. Morris's, um, Errol Morris's uh, doc uh, famous documentary, The Thin, the Thin Blue Line, released in 1988, is one of the best examples of a reflexive documentary of this kind. If, uh, in case you haven't seen it, the documentary is widely uh, credited for having been instrumental in the final exoneration of Randall Dale Adams, who was wrongfully sentenced to death for the murder of a police officer in, Dan in Dallas in 1977. Morris's documentary does not disavow, but actually acknowledges his personal point of view in the case. As documentary filmmaker and historian Charles Muser states, paradoxically, by embracing an array of techniques associated with fiction film, Morris did not undermine the distinction between fiction and documentary but rather provides a different and arguably more powerful kind of truth. Following Muser's interpretation, we can argue that the fact that these documentaries use fictional elements, aesthetic choices, and rhetorical techniques is no reason to reject their claims to truth-telling. To critically examine their credibility is not a matter of simply assessing whether they represent facts in an objective and impartial manner. 
A first critical uh, task consists in identifying specific st uh, strategies to convince viewers of the truthfulness of their content. In my project, I emphasize that this task is useful not only to analyze documentary films, but also legal trials. For instance, in the courtroom, the facts are not self-explanatory. Instead, they undergo a process of reconstruction and are framed by the competing narratives of prosecutors and defense lawyers. In presenting their case, lawyers bring together facts and legal arguments to craft a coherent and engaging story, choosing the most effective rhetorical techniques to convey their meaning to the jury. In turn, the jury's uh, task lies not only in determining guilt or innocence, but also in deciding which of the narrative accounts is more persuasive, convincing, and compelling. In other words, trials and documentaries share a structural and epistemological assumptions and devices. Both seek to reconstruct actual events and provide evidence to make their case. Both are the result of elaborate processes of selection and rhetorical argumentation. And both rely on representational and aesthetic choices to provide a convincing argument. Just to clarify, none of this is to say that trials and documentaries are the same thing. They are different in many fundamental ways. What these scholars and myself argue is that a critical analysis of the truth value claims of both trials and documentaries um, requires understanding the processes of construction which end up making them credible and acceptable for the viewer. So now I would like uh, to pose a final question. Considering that these documentaries expose structural problems of the justice system, could it be argued that contribute uh, to a general skepticism or even cynicism about the formal institutions of law? Indeed, some legal scholars warn us that there is a risk of sowing general distrust about legal institutions that might feed into the so-called post-truth era marked by conspiracy theories, fake news, alternative facts, in which emotions have more weight than evidence and truth. For these legal scholars, given that the documentaries are not bound by rules of evidence or principles of criminal procedure, they might fall into the use of inflammatory rhetoric to evoke emotions like anger and outrage, or they might exclude evidence that contradicts the documentary's point of view. In doing so, they can present a distorted image of the legal system and thus contribute to the general delegitimation of legal institutions. It might be tempting to respond to this challenge by wanting to turn the clock back to an era where the distinction between true, false, Fact, fiction, reason, and emotion, objective and subjective, they were thought to be clear and ambiguous. But as Hannah Arendt noted long time ago, deceit, distortion, and misinformation are part of political discourse in democratic systems. 
Contemporary feminist and critical race legal scholars like Kimberly Crenshaw and others have also argued that the courtroom functions like another political domain, wherein the interpretation of the facts and the law is always shaped by ideology, power, gender, and race. So to conclude, I would like to argue that whether post-truth represents a new phenomenon that, me, that must be accounted for, or it is just the latest catchy term for a long-standing concern, true crime and trial documentaries appear nonetheless as good instruments to examine how our perceptions and affective responses to legal storytelling and images are shaped. So class of 2027, whether you are aspiring lawyers, historians, journalists, filmmakers, scientists, or you just happen to love watching true crime documentaries, I encourage you to critically examine how what you see, hear, and experience can feel true. At a time when we are surrounded by YouTube videos, TikToks, Reddit, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and maybe I'm too old and I forgot more interesting <laughs> ones, <laughs> um, we must be very sensitive not only to bias and manipulative content, but most importantly, how this content is made persuasive and credible. As I have tried to exemplify in my talk, the study of film and media uh, does not provide a magic solution to this problem, but it can provide analytical tools to maintain a critical eye that is useful for the political times we live in. Well, you are in luck, because as Dean Olson mentioned already, I'm thrilled to announce that Reed has created a new major in film and media studies that my wonderful colleagues have worked so hard, <laughs> so hard to, to, to arrive to this moment. In our film and media courses, you will have the opportunity to delve into history, theory, and aesthetics of film and media. Be introduced to a diverse range of traditions from post-war French cinema, Chinese realism, Russian cinema, German films, Latin American and Spanish films, to American film noir and classical Hollywood Western. In addition, you will also be able to explore the interdisciplinary connections of film and media with other fields like religion, politics, anthropology, music, art, theater, and even video games. So class of 2027, I hope you seize this opportunity to become part of Reed's film and media community. Thank you and welcome to Reed.